Hello and welcome to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me, Dan Barker. Conversations with inspiring business people throughout the three counties of Herefordshire, Worcestershire and Gloucestershire. And now it's time for today's episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, hello and welcome to the Thriving Three Counties podcast. I'm Dan Barker and I'm here in the studio with today's guest. His past experiences include serving in the Royal Navy on nuclear submarines for over 20 years, trekking Mount Kilimanjaro, running the London Marathon, skippering a yacht around the Greek islands and what he describes as a number of interesting jobs, which I'm looking forward to hearing more about. (laughs) Uh, He now runs a luxury food hamper business with his wife based in Tewkesbury. And he's learning as much as he can about running a business and all that goes with that, bookkeeping, sales, marketing, social media and everything. Their sister business is a stunning deli in Tewkesbury, Miss Muffets, one of my favourite places locally for food. He is Simonville. Hello. Thanks, Dan. Hello. Nice to meet you. How are you doing? All right. Yeah, not too bad. Good, good. Thanks for for coming in. It's my pleasure. Sure. uh, As we were saying earlier, you're pretty busy, so... uh, Appreciate you taking the time out to come and uh, do this. Yeah, life gets a bit hectic, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's all part of the fun, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, just before we get started, you're at mmhampers.co.uk. Yep, uh, mmhampers limited, yeah, but it's mmhampers.co.uk. And people can go there and uh, order all sorts of hampers, but t- particularly cheese? Um, I'm going to say it's not particularly cheese hampers the the hampers okay. are made up from uh, produce that we sell in the in the physical shop yeah uh, the sister company yeah um but the uh, but the cheese doesn't uh, the cheese doesn't last particularly well in the in the hampers because it because it's cut from larger blocks okay gotcha um so it doesn't so it would sit if it was a picnic for instance a picnic hamper yeah okay, then it would sit well in that hamper. But quite a lot of people, I, I suspect, would get hampers and then would not eat everything that was in the hamper at the same time. Mm-hmm. They would graze from it over a number of weeks. Well, of course, mm-hmm. the cheese won't mm-hmm. last in that manner. You would have to take that cheese out and put it in a in a fridge. So, um, so we sort of tend to steer clear of that. But we yeah. do sell cheese boxes. Yeah. Okay. Of course. So it's so it's individual cheese boxes, deli boxes, and hampers. Nice, and it's all uh, top quality stuff. It's all top quality <laughs> stuff. Yeah, and we uh, uh, we market ourselves, we model ourselves on Fortnum and Mason, but without quite the budget. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's a it's a lovely place. The, yeah. Uh, the deli and the foods like we've come and uh, filmed there for the growth hub a couple of times. Well, it's, I think with, it's uh, um, with Nicky and the foods, I think it's like, really good quality stuff. Nicky's yeah. got a, a an eye for uh, quality and taste, and she knows what she likes and what we like uh, and yeah. so she she buys from that range to stock in the to stock in the shop yeah to be able to sell it and because it's stocked in the shop to be able to sell it we stock it in the hampers as well to be able to nice. pass that on to other people so people you, that aren't fortunate enough to have a delicatessen like ours on their doorstep yeah 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 so do you eat well at home or is it like beans on toast when you go <laughs> well uh, it, it's a, actually it's a bit of a mixture so for the past uh two weeks our daughter has uh has been transitioning into university and before she went to university we would have uh, a cooked meal uh, every night yeah not that she and she's she's a chef but it's not necessarily that she would cook it but she would have an expectation that there would be a cooked meal so (laughs) consequently we cooked yeah since she's gone to university 
our uh, our culinary efforts have gone <laughs> have gone downhill significantly. And I think uh, last night we had fish and chips, and, and most nights it's either toast or beans on toast or bacon. We'll, I'm sure we'll move out of that You'll phase. Get back to it, yeah. I'm sure we'll move out of that phase. But um, actually, I, I, it's almost like we've gone to university because I think we are eating student food. And when we ask her what she's having. It's uh, it's sushi and uh, and risotto and things like that. You know, she's nice. like, she's actually making the effort. And we're, right. and we're not. We've, <laughs> we've reverted to teenagers. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Got to be done for a bit, though. Hasn't well, it? I, th- I think it has to be. But yes, generally we we eat um, pretty well, uh, and the food that we eat is is of high quality. Nice. I was surprised by how good the pasta is that we yeah. that we sell. I, you'd think because you can make pasta from fresh yeah okay um and not many people bother with doing that the ingredients uh, are the same mm. the world over to make pasta so mm-hmm. you would think that if you had dry pasta okay because it's made from the same ingredients it will be the same quality where wherever you get it from yeah but that's not the case <laughs> okay um and uh, or, although i wouldn't want to uh, deride um, pasta that you get from a supermarket as being of poor quality, it is of a different quality to the to the pasta that you could get from a good delicatessen that is yeah. buying pasta from an Italian source. Yeah, uh, and um, you know, I was quite surprised. I think it's thicker is probably what's what's doing it. Also, so, the, so the spaghetti, if you'd like, from a from a supermarket, is has a you know a, is probably about two to three mil yeah. thick but the spaghetti that you get from from an italian delicatessen is going to be five to six mil thick yeah, it's yeah. significantly more it takes longer to cook it for yeah. instance. so you but know the, it must the, be thicker so that all the ingredients that go into it are of different quality as well aren't they because there's like there's flour and there's flour uh, even yeah, yes no, it I, seems like it's just flour like because i always think that the surprising one for me i i always thought was salt you know, like you can have, you get like yeah. a table salt or whatever and you put that on you. It, it tastes a lot different to like, you know, like a proper nice like Cornish salt or something, you know, that you that you buy. It's just a different taste, isn't it? I think yeah, it's yes. the same for every ingredient. So even the flour that goes into well, it's, it. It's probably like, the mineral content, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. Um, so the salt is, uh, is sodium chloride, but it won't be pure sodium chloride. It'll be sodium chloride mixed with the minerals yeah. uh, that, have, that have come from the source. Yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, of course, sea salt is seawater condensed. So, yeah, yeah. So it's that and other minerals. Yeah, mm. yeah. Cool. And we'll get onto your uh, seawater experiences yeah. later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, many, so, many and varied. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you grew up in London, did you originally? Yes, born in uh, born in Hammersmith in 1961. Um, just. Just 1961, and then I lived... 31st. 31st of December. Yeah. And I lived um, I lived in London until I was about 13, mm-hmm. uh, I think. And actually, I, my, as you'd expect, my oldest friends come from, come from London. I, yeah. I went up to see them uh, very recently and met up with a number of people that, I'd went, that I went to school with, to junior school oh, cool. with, you know, so... <laughs> uh, it's really nice because the... the one of the things that's that's happened to me is I've moved around the country an awful lot. I've changed my jobs an awful lot. And and in the Royal Navy, you end up moving 
uh, from ship to ship or from submarine to submarine. And uh, it's not like it would be for the army or how I would imagine it is for the army. So the army mm. will have a, a regiment and a battalion. And although some of the people will, will move, the core of people remains the same. So the whole regiment okay. moves from place to place. Gotcha. Um, okay. So everybody moves together and you all, you all go to the same place. But on a, on a ship or a submarine, you move as an individual. The ship's company doesn't move. Right. Okay. You move as an individual. And so you will go to different submarines throughout the, the, your service and different shore establishments in different areas. So you never stay in touch with people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I'm, I was on uh, HMS Warspite uh, during the Falklands War, for mm -hmm. instance. So I'm a member of the Warspite uh, Association on uh, on facebook and quite a lot of my old colleagues i see them on facebook but i don't go to any reunions right yeah. um i remember their names they remember my name and but realistically i'm, I'm looking at that now and it's dispatches it's people it's people dying right yeah, um yeah, yeah. you know you you uh, they call it um crossing the bar right um <laughs> Yeah, it refers to crossing the sandbar. But yeah. but I see people crossing the bar, and, and every year that number increases, the people yeah. that I knew that uh, that aren't here anymore. So. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And you're so. never sure when you're, when you're a nuclear submariner. You don't know what the what your longevity is going to be. You know, I, I slept very close to a nuclear reactor for a very <laughs> long time, and it, and it will have had... You know, it's got lead shielding and uh, boronated polythene and all the other bits and pieces that go along with that kind of setup to protect you from gamma rays and alpha and beta particles and, yeah. and those kind of things. But still and all, <laughs> you know, yeah. I spent a number of years of my life in a steel tube underwater in close proximity to a nuclear reactor, <laughs> um, yeah. you know. Yeah, you've got to wonder. It's a bit like Russian roulette, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're never quite sure uh, how that's going to pan out. A bit safer now in the deli with a good food. But yeah, a little bit, a little bit safer in the deli. Yeah, so um, right. where, where did you move off at 13 then? Uh, we moved to uh, Slough and then uh, out of Slough relatively quickly. That was sort of a, a staging post for us, I guess, and as a family. And we ended up moving to Twyford in, uh, in Berkshire. Right, okay. Um, which was an interesting experience for me uh, growing up because uh, as, a, as a child, I, I had become used to going on London transport. Mm -hmm. And if you're a Londoner, you, you can sort of, that experience resonates with you. You're used to getting on right. London buses. You're used to getting on uh, <laughs> the, the London underground. And you're used to that mode of transport. Yeah. And in the 60s, of course, uh, I, we didn't travel very much. You know, we, we, if your family had a car, you went on holiday in the car, but you very rarely went anywhere else on the train mm -hmm. other than, well, for me, other than sort of central London and around the areas of central London. When we moved to Twyford, that's not on the underground. <laughs> okay. So we moved to, we moved to Twyford. That, so that was the countryside for me, as far as I was concerned. Berkshire was, was you know, very rural yeah. countryside. And... Uh, the first train I had to get on had carriages like the Pullman carriages in my train set. Right. You actually physically <laughs> had to open the door yourself and get in and then shut the door. And uh, for those of us of a certain age, because I don't, sh I don't imagine they have this kind of rolling stock anymore, you actually sat in, uh, in an indiv individual 
portion of the carriage. Right. So you opened the door, got in, and there were seats for six on one side, seats for six on the other, and you couldn't move between parts of the carriage. You end yeah, up sitting yeah. in this little area, yeah. uh, a little bit like um, a little bit like the carriages in in Harry Potter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> on the Hogwarts Express and. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I actually remember both types of those: one with the passageway down the centre or to the or to the left-hand side, uh, and ones without any passageway whatsoever. Uh, and and I actually questioned whether I was getting on the right train because I thought I was getting on the Orient Express the first time. <laughs> the first time I got on it, you know, as a as a thirteen-year-old. So what are we talking? Seventy-three, seventy-two, seventy-three. Yeah. Um, but I didn't feel too sheltered, really. My my, you know, I I knew a. a, a lot or I knew things about uh, about life or about the countryside and I, and I knew other people who were moving out of London to the estate that we end up living on right. who'd never seen cows right okay yeah. you know there's uh, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I met someone who had never seen a cow in real life yeah you know and was quite surprised how big they were <laughs> why, why did you move out of London then why did the family move um, I was a, a, a marriage breakdown for my for my parents right, and okay. um, my mum uh, we we stayed with mum as everybody mm. did in those days yeah. we very rarely went with dad I think, don't think dads had the same uh, 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 I don't think the same rules applied you know so it yeah. was access they, they would apply for access and get access and that's what it was called right, and you would okay. see them once a fortnight on on their access day right okay. um, uh, so um so yeah we we moved out to to Twyford cuz my mum uh, remarried mm-hmm. okay um, so when i was 16 i i had a new brother right um who who you know a baby which, yeah. which was quite interesting yeah yeah um, and i his name's Phil he does very well actually uh, I tried to compete with Phil for a while and then gave up competing with Phil because I think he got different <laughs> breaks in life. Uh, his life was slightly different to, to mine. But, but he, you know, he's got a... My mum said, have you seen Phil's new Porsche? <laughs> I said, oh, yes, I'm really interested in Phil's new Porsche. <laughs> I'm glad... I'm not, actually, I'm glad he's, I'm glad he's doing well because um, he's my brother. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and actually, he's a, he's, a great, he's a great guy. But it's a different generation, you know. Sixteen years yeah. is a, is a generation. Yeah, difference. it's basically a generation, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah, at least. Yeah, is possibly quite? two generations realistically, because like if you sort of measure the generations in ten year, yeah, in ten year gaps. Yeah, you're nearly there. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, so you went off to to the Royal Navy shortly. Yeah, so after I joined that, the Royal Navy at seventeen. What made um, you decide to do that? My great grandfather had been in the royal navy and i grew up hearing stories about um him being in the navy right and i knew uh, other people who had who had joined the navy and and in 1979 when you think about it that's the if you weren't around i guess you weren't around but it but quite. <laughs> um it's it's that was the winter of discontent mm-hmm. that was the winter that um that margaret thatcher Came into came into power to go yeah. from Ted Heath, I, I think, then if I recall, um, but the the country had been effectively going to the dogs, and she uh, 
she started turning it around in 1980. And the very first thing she did was give the armed forces a much needed pay rise. So we right. all thought that she was great and voted for her for a, a long time thereafter. <laughs> and, um, uh, but it, had, it seemed that there wasn't much to do if mm. you, for me, Mm. personally if you weren't going to join the armed forces or if you weren't going to to um, be part of an institution right. you would you would you know my colleagues sort of drifted from job to job or or had at that time what looked like would turn out to be low paid menial tasks mm -hmm. um and the royal navy gave me a way of look of developing a trade uh, of growing up Mm -hmm. You know, sort of taking some responsibility for myself, moving out. Um, and I don't think I would have done that at 17 if I'd taken a, a job in civilian life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's kind of almost like an yeah, well, obvious the, choice. When you go into the, when you're in the armed forces, you grow up quite quickly. You know, yeah, I'm so, sure, yeah. I mean, you, you, you kind of have to. You, it's much like, I suppose, going to university is now. You have to learn to fend for yourself. You, you mm. cook. You're responsible for cleaning your clothes. Mm. You're responsible for the tidiness of your room, for your for uh, for where you cook, but even more so in the forces than it would be if you were in the if you went to a university, because because in the forces someone is checking yeah. that you've yeah, yeah. that you've done it to an exacting standard which they have set for you and trained you to follow. Do you think that's been a useful thing for you looking back over the years, like g generally in life as a you know, human beings. Yeah, I think it sets you up to be uh, quite uh, quite contained. Mm. I think I, I I try to have a very little negative impact. Um, what do you mean? On the on on my surroundings. Okay, so okay, so, so like I, I try out, to make much mess. Of, I, yeah. I I don't um, I don't tend to spread myself out. Right. I'm quite. I'm quite. Everything's quite contained. Everything's yeah. got a place. Yeah. Uh, and everything's in the place that it's meant to be in. <laughs> so generally, I can find everything that yeah. I, I'm looking for. I don't lose my keys. I don't lose my phone. Right. I don't lose my glasses. Okay. You know, <laughs> uh, it's. I know where everything is all the time, or as much of the time as possible, because I put it there. Okay. On Would purpose. Nikki agree with this if we got her into a check? I think she would to a certain degree. She would agree she would agree with it from the perspective of being the complete opposite. Okay. So Nikki can sit down with a pair of glasses and five minutes later has lost them. Okay. <laughs> so I have to find them for her. Um Yeah. Nikki can have the T V buttons on her lap and five minutes later has lost them. <laughs> so you 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 progress then through the Royal Navy. I guess, and uh, I've obviously enjoyed it um, over that, that time. I, well, in hindsight, what? looking back, I enjoyed it very much. At the time, you don't necessarily think I'm enjoying this a lot. Right. You know, um, there's a, a, a deal of separation uh, around it. You go to sea, mm -hmm. and you go to sea for extended periods of time. And uh, How long would you go out for? Well, the longest I did was uh, four months. Right, okay. Uh, that was... So that's four months. And so just We'll put this in perspective, okay? 110 days, submerged, in a steel tube, without seeing the sunlight. Wow. Okay? Without yeah, seeing yeah. the sun. Uh, without 
uh, smelling the sea yeah. without any fresh air. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we all smoked then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which, which nowadays, we look at each other and go, horror. You were in, a, <laughs> in an enclosed steel tube and you all smoked. Yeah, and we pretty much did. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, and you couldn't grow your hair. Or you couldn't cut your hair. You can cut you, it. Oh, yeah, because you had nowhere to put the. There's nowhere to put it. Cut it. Okay, so, right. so I know it seems it seems weird and strange, but they're almost things that you need to you have to think about if you want to put yourself into the mindset of yeah of yeah. how that works. Yeah, didn't, no, I never didn't about see that. any women yeah. for 110 days. Didn't yeah. see further than 100 foot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I didn't have to have any long distance vision. For yeah. for that period of time, uh, and it's a moving platform. Yeah. So it's constant. It's a constant motion. Mm. Uh, so your your ears, your brain, everything gets used to the constant motion, the constant vibration, the constant noise, the mm. smells, um, and then uh, then you get back alongside and it stops. The motion yeah. stops. The smells change. The yeah. you you walk up onto the jetty and you can see. 20 miles whereas before you could see 100 feet you know it's <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it's all quite it, it's called quite different um do you, do you have to train specifically for that or no, you, to, just you just do go it. on and you just do it you and just do it people struggle with it some some people do i i didn't think i would and i didn't mm. struggle with it it's, right. uh, i never felt uh, enclosed didn't f- it didn't give me feelings of claustrophobia right um it was sort of an environment that i could thrive in really so right. so for me it was it was great you know personally i mm. i looking back i i r- really enjoyed it yeah although if you'd asked me at the time i probably wouldn't have told you i was enjoying it really yeah yeah but it's but it's a it's part of your life isn't it whenever you Whenever you look back at a, a part of your life, you could either say, yeah, it was great or it wasn't great, but it was an experience mm. and it was an interesting experience. But when I got to the age of 40, it wasn't one that I wanted to continue. Right. I had, yeah. the, op- I had the option, yeah. um, uh, but it wasn't, the, it wasn't the, the actual being at sea and being in the Navy that was the problem. It was the separation. Right. Yeah, separation from the family at, yeah. at that time. And... Um, then I mean it, it wasn't Nikki it was you know it was my first wife and we were um, we decided for the children that we would have a a, a static home mm-hmm. so for the first 10 years we all moved together all of us right. every time I moved they moved so we okay. we lived in uh, Portsmouth we lived in Plymouth we lived in um, Faz Lane right um in in Scotland, um, and we bought our first house in Fast Lane in Scotland, and uh, and then we decided when uh, Aaron uh, was coming towards the end of primary school that we should uh, have a, a home base and and keep the home base separate from um, the navy, mm-hmm. uh, and and what that meant was I would effectively have to live in digs, right. Um, and I, so I lived in digs for about 10 years. Yeah. Um, 
perhaps even longer than that, maybe about 15 years, I, mm. sus- I suspect. Actually, if I look back now and try to sort of work out the, the timelines of it. Um, and we decided to live in, uh, in, the, in Kent because mm. uh, Sally and I had met in Chatham. Right. When I was when I was on my very first submarine, it was water right. We met in we met in Chatham. Uh, so we lived in Kent, and they lived in Kent, and I moved all over the country with the Royal Navy. Right. But it was that degree of separation that, that caused the problem, and uh, and then actually, um, I decided not to stay in the Navy, and then got divorced very quickly. Right. Okay. Uh, because I think um, we'd got to it was it's interesting the the way life throws things at you uh she was a great person and and i was an ass i suspect <laughs> uh, it's just the way it's just the way that it was looking back now i could see that i was probably being an ass but at the time it didn't feel like it yeah okay at the time i thought everything that i was doing i was fully justified in doing and it felt like the right thing for me uh yeah. and um uh, we ended up uh, we ended up getting divorced and uh, and I moved again and I ended up moving around uh, had uh, other relationships uh, and then uh, met Nikki in 2014. It's quite an extreme way of life, isn't it? Like however you cut it, you know, whether you're moving the family around or you're moving around living in digs and you're going out to sea for months at a it's time. An, it's it's uh, for the vast majority of the population it's an unusual life yeah when you're doing it you're surrounded by people who are also yeah living yeah. that life and so consequently you don't think of it as being something that's particularly unusual especially if you've been doing it since 17 as yeah. well that's kind of the norm i mean for it? me I, I i went back to london recently for uh, a friend's 40th wedding anniversary yeah um i was meant to be his best man Right. But wasn't because I because I was in the Falklands. I, right, okay, I, I was yeah. at, I was at sea. But we we have always remained in contact. His wife is the first girl I kissed. Right. I like to remind him of that occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, and we and we all used to go on holiday together and and we get on uh, like a, a house of fire. And then it's like uh, it's like I've never been away when I see yeah, them. Yeah. But they live within three miles of where we went to school. Right. But all, all three of us. So yeah. all three of us were at the same secondary school. I was only there for a year and then I, then I moved on. But we were all at the same secondary school. They, they live within three miles of the secondary yeah. school that they went to. They've never really moved out of that area. And yet I've been all over the country and over different parts of the world and other bits and pieces. And for me, that's normal. And what they're yeah. doing is abnormal. Yeah. I look at that and go, <laughs> how can you do that? How, how can you live in an area... And it, and you and you've never moved out of that area for your whole life. How is how does that work for you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and but for me, it's uh, it's completely the other way around. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. It's, it's it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Like, my life norms. for me, my life is normal. Yeah. For them, yeah. their life is normal, and mine is abnormal. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to explain that to my kids the other day, like about you know, people, the way people, you know, different people's lives and everything, yeah. and explain to them that what you have. You know, seems normal to you just because you're used to it, and you know other kids live a different life, and that's, that's normal to them. But yeah. it's um, it's kind of worth. It's interesting because I was I was doing some work yesterday for a guy. He he runs mountain walks uh, as a business consultant, and um, we were talking afterwards about you know how you interact with people who 
who work differently to you or have a different you know a different way of communicating and everything and I guess it's the same kind of thing isn't it it's worth considering other people's norms you know when you're communicating with them or when they're communicating with you because they're coming from a completely different perspective yeah. in many ways and but actually I mean that's an that's an interesting that's an interesting job if you like or way of life being a being an outdoor pursuits instructor or an outdoor pursuits enthusiast or running an outdoor pursuits business because effectively you are investing in your chosen way of life and bringing other people into it so that they get uh, an experience mm. of the way that you've chosen to 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 be you know so yeah, you've chosen yeah. to be outdoors uh, to uh, to commune with nature in whichever way you, you do it, which is walking yeah. or, you know, you, you're always listening to it, you're always seeing it, you're always in it and part of it. Um, and in an urban environment, you're not necessarily part of that. And in your normal day-to-day uh, job, if you work in an office, for instance, mm. that's an unusual environment for you yeah. uh, to, to be in. So to be able to make a living out of your enjoyment of an unusual environment and bringing other people into that... I, I think that's uh, I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's 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 called um, mountain perspective for yeah. that that reason. I think so that you know he gives people a, literally a different perspective yeah. on uh, on life and <laughs> you know takes them out of that office. But well, I did that in the I did something like that in the nineties, and I suppose I did something like it in the noughties as well because uh, in the nineties, towards the tail end of my career with the with the Royal Navy, I found myself on. Uh, on a on a submarine, HMS Valiant, it, uh, which was the second, actually, it was the first British-built nuclear submarine. Um, there was one that preceded it, which was the Dreadnought, but effectively the Dreadnought was an old Skipjack-class nuclear submarine from America. Right. Uh, well, built on Amer- American standards. Even if it wasn't American, it was built with a lot of American intervention. Right. Uh, and the what the British... Um, designers learnt on building the dreadnought they used when they built uh, Warspite and Valiant which was SSN right. 02 and 03 the second and the third nuclear submarines hunter killer class and I served on both of those but by 95 because they were they were sort of their keels were laid down in 61 62 so they were almost as old as me but by 95 they were getting a little tired right. uh, and um, both of them paid off for different reasons uh, at that time. And I was serving on Valiant when it paid off. And we went to Plymouth. uh, And from 1995 to 1999, I was still part of the ship's company of that submarine, but it was tied to the wall in Plymouth. Didn't go anywhere. Uh, And the the ship's company reduced reduced and reduced and reduced until it was just a core nucleus of... um, of people that would uh, that were effectively keeping the submarine afloat mm-hmm. and maintaining the core because the right. core was still in the in the submarine. Right. Uh, so we had to maintain the core safety, and we were doing week week and week about week on week off. Right. And on the week off, I would go home, yeah, and be with my family. And on the week on, we did twenty four on, twenty four off. Right. Uh, so the twenty four on spent on the submarine doing those doing the things that you had to do on the submarine to keep it the, the way that it was and then the 24 off uh, I would climb 
or right. rock climbing. Right. Okay. Uh, and in in the Plymouth area, you've got access to Dartmoor, mm-hmm. um, the South Coast Cliffs. Uh, Isle of Wight is not that far away, so mm-hmm. you can go climbing at um, uh, in Weymouth mm-hmm. and Swanage, uh, and all the way down to Lands End. So it was, there was a, it was a climbing playground, right, and we climbed yeah. and climbed and climbed, and we did that <laughs> for four years. Yeah. Uh, and in my first year of climbing, I was very very scared. I used to be tied to the rock face mm. by my by my colleagues. By the time I I finished climbing, I could solo things without. Right. Without uh, ropes, I would, wow. uh, and uh, and uh, th- through year one, I recognised that I wasn't strong enough to climb as well as I wanted to climb. Yeah. So I started doing a lot of weights, and I started right. running to lose weight. Yeah. And then the running took me into a running club. Right. Uh, and and so I, whereas I'd run to get fit and to lose weight, I was actually running to run right. at this stage, <laughs> and the running became primary, and the climbing started to become secondary. Um, yeah, it's interesting how life how, <laughs> how life evolves and it, and, yeah. it, and it changes things for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But I taught uh, I taught people to climb, yeah. so I took I was in sort of year four, which was 90, 98, 99, I was taking novices out to the cliff face, right, and teaching them to climb, oh, cool. uh, and teaching them to abseil, and, yeah. and doing and doing things like that, right. Uh, and uh, and, uh, and of course, because I was in the armed forces, we we were used to trekking, going on treks mm-hmm. and uh, and adventurous pursuits, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, so I've always had an affinity with that, which is strange when you consider I was a submariner with a <laughs> with a you know a, a, a hundred foot limitation on where, on where I could see. The fact that I would love going into the mountains and, uh, yeah, and going yeah. into the wild places is uh, is quite interesting. How do you just um, like kind of? It, because I'm interested. <laughs> no, when you're in submarine like that, then how do you sort of go about a keeping fit and b what do they do about food and supplies and everything? Okay, like so that? You, you obviously take your food with you. Yeah. Okay. Most of it is tinned. I was say four months uh, worth or, of- <laughs> or or frozen. But yeah. You take tinned, frozen, and fresh. You okay. eat the fresh to start with. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then you move on to tinned and tinned and frozen. Yeah. Food. Um, let me tell you, after 90 days, an egg <laughs> tastes a bit friggy. <laughs> tastes a bit friggy. But if you've kept it well, you could probably eat an egg that is 60 days old and it won't taste too ropey. Really? Yeah. I don't, well, unless, unless they were getting progressively ropey and your taste buds were just adapted to the progressive, <laughs> progressive ropiness. But I did notice that around about 90 days... They weren't that nice. So there's, but when you say you take your own food, you don't all individually take your own food. No, no. They, it's, they uh, so the, you store to... the submarine. There, there were because it's a fighting platform. First and foremost, yeah. Uh, not a great deal of thought was given to storing enough food for the number of people that needed to man the fighting platform <laughs> for more than. 90 days right okay so and even uh, even going to sea for 90 days um we would build false floors right so we put the tinned food because the tins are all the same size yeah we put that on the floor the actual floor and then we yeah. would put uh hardboard yeah okay. over the top of that and create another floor yeah. so we would be walking on our food 
right okay effectively and then as you as you uh, as the t- as time went on you would eat the floor <laughs> the floor would walk Start back digging up your food yeah that's that's it okay so so you you didn't have to walk quite as crouched over yeah. <laughs> as you as time uh, as time went on um yeah, and, and uh, we, you, we, you're a self-contained unit. So you, so almost everything that you need, that you think you might need, has to be on that submarine when it slips. When yeah. It, you know, when you when you go to sea. Yeah, because you can't. So all of the spares you think you might need need to be on board it. All of the food you think you might need needs to yeah. be on board it. Um, all, all the entertainment that you think yeah. you might need needs to be on board it. So, uh, so we would have um, board games. Yeah. I mean, you think if you think about this, and it, and it's difficult almost to think about it. In 1982, that was the birth of VHS and Betamax videos. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we had a television on board the submarine, but we didn't have a video player. And you and uh, to hire a video. Yeah. Okay. It was before Blockbuster yeah. was invented. Blockbuster <laughs> didn't exist. Okay. To hire a video, you paid a deposit of sixty pounds. Uh. 60 this is not the recorder <laughs> okay this is a video yeah. uh, a vhs video you paid a deposit of 60 pounds and then you would pay for the for the video over that period but you had to have a deposit with the yeah. with the shop that you bought the video from because <laughs> the video itself was worth so much money yeah because yeah. they were they were rare crazy i think i remember i think it was radio rentals that <laughs> that uh that we got our first video player from in the uh, in the flat that I used to live in with my colleagues, yeah, yeah. and that was that was probably 1980. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the very first video we rented was um, Superman with Christopher right. Reeves in it, and I think we had it for two weeks because why would you not continue yeah. to watch a film for two weeks? Uh, and uh, uh, and and we paid a, a significant amount Huge of money. Amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> To, to hold it for that long. If you think about so, the way, if, you know, anybody that remembers that format, the, the tape would stretch. The yeah. tape could get chewed up by, yeah, your, yeah, yeah. by, your, by your player. <laughs> I'm glad that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> so we should, uh, we should move, move a little bit on to how you got into your, your business, I think, then from... Uh, yeah. You came out of the Navy... About forty, and then uh, give us a bit of an overview of, of of how you get to setting up a, a food hamper business. Yeah, potted <laughs> history. So, uh, my trade as an engineer, I, okay. I was a a, a, mecha- a nuclear mechanical nuclear engineer, effectively, I, I suppose, uh, and it was propulsion systems mainly. So mm-hmm. that for me, that was um, steam turbines, mm-hmm. um, rotating machinery pumps mm-hmm. um like a tank you know water tanks that that kind of things but yeah. propulsion equipment re- um realistically for a long time and and when i was in the navy the general thought pattern of people that were in the navy around about the same time as me is you had to leave eventually mm-hmm. okay so even if you did even if you did a full career term uh, which at that time was 22 years mm. as a, as a man so from your 18th birthday another 22 years which which, right, is, okay. which is why I say I, I did twenty three because it took me to uh, took me to my fortieth birthday. Actually, yeah. just just beyond that, uh, yeah. as it as it turned out in the end. But um, 
but yeah, and, and I had the option of doing another 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was offered to me. But I didn't think that I wanted to be pushing around uh, submarines in my 40s. Right. Um, yeah, it, didn't, it didn't appeal to me. I thought, yeah. well, can I, can I do that until I'm 50? And then they'll, and then they'll offer me another five yeah. on top of that. And could I do it until I was 55? And I thought, at 40, I thought, no, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. Uh, couldn't deal with the separation anymore and, the, and all the grief yeah. and everything yeah. that comes with that. Uh, so I, I decided to leave. Uh, I thought I would be a teacher. Right. That's, that's what I aspired to be. So right. in the last six years of my naval career, I did an open university degree mm-hmm. so that I would meet all of the criteria to be able to teach. Gotcha. I would have a degree. Okay. I had a maths GCSE. Yeah. Uh, and all I would need to do on completion is a PGCE. Postgraduate mm-hmm. Certificate of Education, uh, and that would give me uh, QTS, Qualified Teaching. Something. Something. Can't remember <laughs> now. I think it was called QTS anyway. Yeah. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so after I left, to ease me into that, or to see if I liked what I thought I was going to be, I became a, a, a teacher's assistant. Okay. Loved it and hated it in right. the same degree. Okay. <laughs> It was really good fun to to work with the to work with the kids. They they were funny uh, mm. and it was interesting. Um, but and I don't know. It might be completely different now. But at that time, you you didn't get any training right. to be a okay. teacher to be a teaching assistant. And so okay. and and you actually got the you got to work with the children who were the hardest to teach. Right. So you had yeah. no training. Right. And you were working with the ones who right. didn't necessarily want to learn, right. or yeah. couldn't, or found it more difficult to learn. Mm. So, so it was very challenging. And actually, yeah. anyone who was doing that level of job then and now, I, you know, I would take my hat off to them because if yeah. they if they if they still don't receive that level of training, then it was actually quite difficult for them. Yeah, so anyway, sure. I I considered that teaching wasn't for me, which kind of left me adrift really. A little bit because that's what I had been uh, working towards for for the last six years. Mm. Um, so I thought, well, uh, I know engineering. I've been an engineer for twenty two years at that stage. Yeah. So I thought I would go back to engineering. Uh, took a term. Took a, a job with GlaxoSmithKline. That mm. was very good in pharmaceuticals, mm. uh, in production. Um, rose quite quickly with Glaxo in the very short period of time that I was with them uh, and to become a shift manager. Uh, relocated to Devon. Right. Uh, and the original plan was to... I actually did relocation, relocation with, with <laughs> Phil and Kirsty. Right. Did, did that, okay? And the plan at that time was for me to live in a narrowboat and continue to work for GSK. Right. And the main home, bearing in mind, you know, I'd done this sort of thing um, yeah for a number of years the main home would be in Devon and um, that didn't quite pan out the way that I'd planned Uh, uh, my partner at the time kept buying horses right (laughs) Uh, and we didn't even have any land to keep the horses on so she kept buying horses and then uh, kept uh, kept creating expense to keep the horses so to to exercise some control realistically I decided to stop working with GSK and um, and I was going to work for myself and I gave that about eight to ten months 
but it was a very hand-to-mouth existence. Um, I did, I effectively did odd jobs. I created almost an odd job company. Right, okay. um, But I didn't like asking people f- for the money. Oh, right, okay. It, it was quite it's quite difficult. It was quite strange because yeah. you, you would do you would say I'm going to do this job for you. Uh, they'd they'd ask me to do a job. I would cost the job. I would do the job, and then I'd have to ask for the money. And I and I'd come from a background where you didn't ask for the money. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I was going to say. And when you're a PAYE job, you're not asking for the money. Someone's giving yeah. you doing the work, and then someone gives you the money. Yeah. yeah. Okay. In this job, I would finish the work. And then they wouldn't give me the money. I'd have to ask for it. I'd have to invoice for the money. Yeah. Uh, and that was difficult for me because I ended up working for uh, elderly people usually because they couldn't do the work themselves. Right, you know, Clearing yeah. their gardens and, uh, yeah. uh, and, and doing things like that. So, um, so I didn't like it very much. Looked for a PAYE job, found another PAYE, another engineering job, engineering yeah. manager uh, in a production firm. Did that for quite some time and then moved on to facilities management. Um, and I was in facilities management and really I still am to a certain degree mm-hmm. for for uh, quite a long time um, for a number of different companies that okay. we, won't, we won't necessarily go into. But yeah, yeah, I've worked sure. for a lot of different major league players in facilities management as a senior manager mm-hmm. for quite some time. Okay. Um, and then Nikki, who had been a youth worker, uh, found that the youth work market had dried up mm-hmm. in, entirely. The government wasn't uh, putting any money into youth work. Councils were still putting some money into youth work, but not a great deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a calling. You, something you did because you felt compelled to do it rather than it was something you did because you thought you would make money at it. Yeah, yeah, okay. sure. Um, and uh, we moved from Bude to uh, Tewkesbury. Uh, and at that time, she'd got a job with um, uh, Gloucester, I think it was Gloucester Mentoring Services. It was a, right. it was a relatively new company, outsourced company, that mm-hmm. were doing youth services. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she fell out of love with it. Right. She just, it was different generation of kids who uh, who didn't want to listen mm. didn't want to engage and uh, and when she was younger uh, it would interest her that these people didn't want to engage and she would try to find out what made them tick and get yeah. underneath their skin so that they would engage so that she could improve their life opportunities and make things better for them and uh, in her 40s in Gloucester uh, with the with the sort of culture, the youth culture that was there, she didn't like those people, mm-hmm. and so she didn't like the youth. Yeah, and, beca- and when you don't like them, you you're clearly not going to <laughs> en- engage with them in the same ways that you yeah, used to yeah. when you were younger yourself. So she started looking for something else to do, and she had an aspiration to own or run a coffee shop. It's actually cool. her words to me. I'd like to earn a. Li- I'd like to run a little cafe. Right. Okay. Because her dad had run a cafe or, okay. and a restaurant, and and okay. he'd been in sort of that line of business. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about it, and we talked about it, and then eventually, f- the right shop came up, the right premises in the right place at the right time. Yeah. So, um, uh, so working together, we bankrolled that. Yeah. And she got into it. Bought 
her friend with her, Phoebe. Yeah. And she had been Phoebe's mentor in youth <gasps> in youth services. So Phoebe was a youth worker. Right. And the yeah. pair of them, she Nikki set up the shop as a sole trader, using our money to fund that. Uh, and Phoebe came and worked for her. And um, you've met both of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, and they they've gone on from strength to strength. Phoebe has now gone back to youth work, but oh, but right. Phoebe is young. Yeah, she is a youth herself. You know, she's in her she's in her twenties, uh, and that's what she trained for, and that's her calling. So she'll get, yeah. she's gone back to it. Uh, in her forties, I suspect she'll come back to delicatessen works. <laughs> okay. And so because Nikki ran that business, uh, we went into that, and then at the start of uh, the COVID pandemic, I like many other people started having thoughts about. Um, quality of life mm-hmm. um, because, I, because I was just working uh, for the money mm. more money than I needed mm. realistically but working working for the money I wasn't yeah. really enjoying the work it was right. all uh, financially driven right okay uh, and we looked at our finances and looked at how much I actually needed to earn for us to uh, survive and, and, and get along. And it mm. was much less than I was actually earning. Right, okay. Uh, so we, we, at that time, the, the shop was, um, or Nikki's business was ripe for expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we decided to, uh, to sort of step into that expansion. Um, but if you if you could cast your mind back, this is sort of late 2018, early 2019. I think we started doing it at around about February. In April, May, we were in lockdown. Yeah. So we'd started we we going down this route of starting our our, our new business, and and the country goes into lockdown. Nikki's business did very well very well on that. Um, our business thoughts were sort of put on hold. My stress levels in my PAY job were were going up and up and up right. because everybody else was stressed. So your natural yeah. background stress levels due to the COVID nineteen pandemic were were higher than your pre COVID stress levels mm. background mm. stress, uh, and everybody else's stress levels were going up. And because they were, I was their manager, they would transfer their stresses onto me. So my stress right, levels yeah. were rising higher than theirs because uh the the drive for output was was higher people didn't mm. want to be at work mm. um you know people thought people thought that they had to stay in their house yeah. and isolate themselves to stay safe and you can yeah. remember those days you know they're not that far away it seems weird now in the position that we're in now to think back to the way that that was and it was only two years ago yeah, yeah. um <coughs> but uh uh, during that that period, my stress levels got to the point where where I didn't think I could continue in the role that I was in, so I stepped back from that role and uh, and took less time mm-hmm. in in a paye job, uh, and I could concentrate on creating our expansion business, if you right. know, which was MM Hampers. Okay. And we decided to expand online because we thought online was going to be a better option for us. Than, uh, than getting another shop. Yeah. Uh, and on paper, without the experience, it, it still looks like that would be the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and and the reasons for it, the rationale behind it, are still are still valid now. If I recount it to you, you'd get, you'd say, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. So a physical shop on a high street, a number of people can walk past your shop yeah. every day. Okay. They physically walk past it, they can see it. Some of them will come in, some of them won't. Okay. Of the percentage that come in, ninety percent will buy something. Some will just come in and look at it. 90% of people will buy something from your mm. shop. And so you have a certain amount of turnover, okay? But the turnover is based on the amount of people that walk past your shop. Yeah. Okay. That are exposed to it, that know it's there. Eventually, of course, people aren't just walking past your shop. They are traveling to the place <laughs> where your shop is to go to your shop. Yeah. You know, that's that's kind yeah. of where you'd like to be, isn't yeah, it? Because yeah. pe- people know you're there. They are aware of you. And then they will travel some distance to come visit you. Yeah. You know, rather than yeah. just happen to be walking past your shop, yeah. um, and so and so we sort of try to quantify that, a figure, mm. and we said, okay, in Tewkesbury, uh, in the location that we're in, maybe five thousand people walk past our shop every day, maybe a thousand of them come in, maybe, you know, and mm. then you look at the till roll and say, oh, this is how much, this is how many transactions. We're yeah. doing in the course of a day, okay? Um, based on that figure of how many people might be walking past on, on both sides of the road or driving past and doing all those other bits and pieces. If we did a shop online, instead of thousands, it would be millions <laughs> who could see our shop, yeah. okay? Um, and so we thought, well, rather than take another physical shop which we kind of had learnt to deal with and we knew how mm. that worked. We took a non-physical shop mm. on the internet because we thought our reach would be significantly higher and we mm. would get to, and more people would know about us. Mm. And so consequently we would make more money because we would make more sales because more people knew that we were out there. What we didn't, what we didn't consider was uh, that although we were on a street with millions of people, we were also on a street with thousands of other outlets. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, and the millions of people might have been walking around, but most of them were looking at something else. Yeah. Not looking at your shop because they couldn't see it or they didn't know it was there or didn't have any mm. interest in it. Um, and so we, uh, although we were aware that we would need to do some marketing. I don't think that we appreciated fully how much marketing we would have to do and how much mm. of our time would be spent on marketing and how mm. important that was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Had we known that, had we known that at the time, we might not have done an e-commerce business. Mm. We might have expanded into a physical shop. Mm. I, you know, looking back on it now, I think that was probably, if we'd known how difficult this was going to be, we probably would have taken mm. another physical shop. Um, or if we knew that we had to do e-commerce, the year that we spent setting up the e-commerce site and the and the offices and the business, we would have also spent marketing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and we didn't. Yeah. You know, during that year, uh, all of our efforts went into um, making sure that we had the right web designers to design the right website, making sure that mm. we had the back office uh, areas that we needed in order to be able to fulfill 
Um, all the orders, orders that were going to come in. All the orders that were come streaming in the moment Just we published the, yeah, our website. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and, of course, what we've got now is, uh, is all of the back office setup that we need to make a small business operate without the operation of a small business because, mm. um, uh, because we're almost invisible. Yeah, um, yeah. We went, we went through a very similar uh, experience yeah. probably about uh, 10 years ago, I guess, when my wife used to have a, a women's clothes boutique in town and uh, we, we thought, right, we're going to have a website built and, yeah, went and hired the designer and, you know, it was a few grand and spent all the time. I mean, it was where I discovered photography, so it yeah. was a good thing in the end. But, yeah, took all the product shots, you know, edited them, got all these listings up, hundreds of listings, and then... Yeah, you put it out there. Yeah, and yeah. You realise actually, no one finds a website really. No, they have to be driven. They have to be driven to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, you do get a, a certain amount of organic growth if you like, if, if you if you put it out there, but it's small. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and uh, as an ind- as an independent business, you you couldn't you couldn't make. You couldn't make money out of it. You it's know. it's not, like a not, whole separate, not to start with. It, it is like a whole separate thing, isn't it? You know, like um, I mean, I know you're doing it as sep- they're separate businesses yeah. anyway. But they, they, I think when we did it, and you know, we were sort of thinking it was part of the whole thing, but actually, it is a separate thing doing an online business to doing a bricks it's a completely and different. Uh, it's a completely different logistical pattern. You have yeah. to think. You have to do things differently. Think differently. Plan differently, yeah. Um, to um, to the way that you would for a physical shop, but but the, yeah. the but the physical parts of of that entity still exist. Mm. You know, you you have to yeah. have uh, uh, an office or mm. something like it, a mm. hub. You know, a distribution yeah. hub, uh, packing. Yeah. You have to have that yeah. warehousing. You have to have that mm. that kind of thing in whatever scale it is that you've that is relative to the business that you've chosen to run. You. You you know um, I mean you can sort of scale up but mm. um, you know we thought well we, <laughs> we at launch we thought the worst thing that could happen to us is we would be inundated with demand for our <laughs> for our product to the extent that we couldn't fulfil and so people would <laughs> people would leave us in droves actually. <laughs> Um, that is not what has happened, uh, and um, and we struggle to drive people to the company. We get repeat business, and we get yeah. ref- and uh, we get business through referral marketing. Yeah. So people will come into the shop. Um, we're fortunate in that we live in an area where there seems to be quite a, a, a large amount of holiday trade. Mm. I wouldn't have thought so with Tewkesbury, really, but there is. No, it's, uh, it's sort of doorway to the Cotswolds, I guess. Mm. Um, so people, uh, an inexpensive doorway to the Cotswolds, so people can come and stay in caravans with us and be quite close to, yeah. or within sort of ten miles of being in the Cotswolds, of being on the Malvern Hills. Mm. Um, but, you, but you're growing. You're growing. Well, I I think from what I've seen, like you know, steadily. We, and, yes, and quite, it, it's quite. it's slow, steady growth. Nothing meteoric. Yeah, you know, um, but slow, steady growth uh, is is sustainable. It's good and it's sustainable. But mm. what I would say is, I would have started a year earlier. Yeah, you know, yeah, if, yeah. had I known um, 
how, how difficult it would be to grow uh, an online business. Mm. Uh, I would have started the marketing for that a year before I needed it and mm. run the risk of getting orders that I couldn't fulfill and saying I can't fulfill those yet, you know, yeah. um, but it's coming. It's, it's, yeah, it's on yeah. its way. Um, I would have started my business 20 years ago if I could have. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, yeah. It's, uh, um, but yeah, uh, tell us about the, uh, the, the sort of um, what, what you're doing with um, Porsche as well, because I think that's a really interesting, you know, good way of, of, of growing what you're doing. It is. So, you, so um, every, every day is a, is a board meeting. When you work <laughs> uh, with your partner, yeah, you know, so uh, we we get up in the morning and have breakfast. It's a board meeting, okay. <laughs> we 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 go to bed in the evening, but just before we go to bed, it's a board meeting. You know, it's a, we're you you uh, you're, you're at risk of becoming boring to each other because you're always talking about business. We do try some separation, try to get some separation, but. Uh, in those chats, we are constantly talking about development and how mm. we can move the the business on. And um, Nikki and I bring different uh, bring different things to the business. And Nikki is quite mm. creative. Mm -hmm. um, I'm I'm quite good with logistics uh, and operations. Mm -hmm. So so I can do the 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 tangible operations and logistics part of it. Nikki does the the um, the creative mm -hmm. part of of making hampers, making it pretty, putting the right things together, yeah. making it seasonal. Um, yeah, uh, sounds like a dream uh, team. Yeah, sort of. Well, it kind of, <laughs> it, it kind of is. We we had to learn to work together. Yeah, that was quite difficult um, because we're both bosses. So so we're both directors, we're co-directors <laughs> of this company. We both have. Uh, Similar but different ideas of growth what we were saying before, and, that, really? and how you <laughs> and how you grow and where you go and and what you do, um, but we both got the same dream. We both want to end up at the same place, but we're taking slightly different paths, or we want to yeah. take slightly different paths to get there. And we have to. There has to be some give and take, some pull and push, um, to be able to work in that direction. And uh, we looked at. We tried sales, and we still try sales to individual people, one-off cheese boxes and cheese box subscriptions, and they are—that's B two C, okay, business to customer, um, and business to customer is good. It's a—it's a—it's a, a bread and butter part of your business to be able to reach out to individual customers, but you're not going to set the world on fire uh, commercially, financially, with individual customers unless you get lots of them. If you've got lots and lots of individual customers, you'll 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 do very well. The early uh, the early lead that you can gain by doing B two B is quite can be quite significant. Yeah. Because where you will sell one cheese box to one customer, you might sell five, six, ten, twenty mm. cheese boxes to a business mm -hmm. who will then distribute them to their own customers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, we looked at ways of doing that, so I, I'm quite active on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. which I was active on anyway, um, from my own from my own perspective. Mm. Um, but have become much more active on from a content creation mm. perspective now, mm -hmm. uh, so that people can see that I that 
the sort of things I do. I've stepped back a little bit from it because because I'm now much more into Facebook and Instagram. Right. Um, but in the B2B work that I was doing on LinkedIn, that instigated conversations between Nikki and I about how we could do local B2B, whether there mm-hmm. was anybody that we could speak to who might like hampers. Yeah. Uh, and we were already uh, working with estate agents mm-hmm. because... Uh, estate agents in this area are are possibly selling houses uh, that will have some house stock of over a million pounds. Mm-hmm. And if you're dealing with house stock that's over a million pounds, when somebody takes receipt of a million pound house, um, a, instead of a, a packet of digestive biscuits and some tea <laughs> and coffee makings left in the kitchen for them on the day that they move in, they might want a hamper. Want a hamper, yeah, okay. nice. So, so that was a market that we were uh, exploring, yeah. And then we started talking about um, the the uh, the outlets or the the other businesses that were in the region where we were based. Mm-hmm. And Porsche, uh, Tewkesbury, mm. is the Porsche out- outlet mm-hmm. for the whole of the Cotswolds. Yeah. And and I'd never bought a Porsche. I, I joked with you earlier that my brother owns owns a Porsche. And if I'd spoken to him about it, I'm sure I could have learnt this a little earlier. But I didn't speak to him about it because I'm incredibly jealous about his Porsche 911, <laughs> his brand new Porsche 911. But um, let's move away from that. Um, uh, one of the things that ha- that happens when you buy a new car of uh, that status is that you get the opportunity to pick it up from wherever you would like to pick it up from. Okay. Okay. Right. So. Uh, if you buy a hundred thousand pound car, you might want to go to Stuttgart right. and pick it up as it rolls off the production line. So you right. are effectively the only person to ever drive it. And okay. I, I'm, I understand that Porsche offer that service. Oh, you right. can do that if you that. if you wish to. Okay? okay. And the other thing that you can do is is pick it pick up your Porsche from uh, uh, from an area of your choice. Right. So. Uh, Porsche Tewkesbury aren't necessarily selling or delivering or passing over the Porsches that Porsche Tewkesbury has sold. It's not necessarily okay. Tewksburyans and Cotswold people that are buying the Porsches. I'm sure they do, but it's yeah. not necessarily those. It's people from other areas who have chosen to pick up their Porsche in the Cotswolds gotcha. so they can drive it back to Manchester, London, mm-hmm. Glasgow, Edinburgh. Yeah. Okay. And and it, and enjoy that drive in yeah. the in their brand new vehicle. Right. Okay. Um and so we we just got I contacted their marketing manager and said uh, look I'm a local company um and we uh, sell hampers. Uh, and she said oh I've been on the lookout for a local company that <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was almost like it sold itself. Um and um uh, and we started talking and then uh, Nikki, being the creative director, put together uh, a hamper, and we drove down to Porsche with a hamper yeah. that Nikki had put together, and the pair of us had wrapped. Yeah. It took half an hour for us to wrap because <laughs> we weren't used to wrapping things in cellophane. All right. um, and um, we presented it to the to the marketing manager and said, "This is this is the hamper, or this is what we're suggesting, um, based on your on your budget." And she said, that's absolutely fantastic. And we said, oh, oh, oh great. Um, you can have this one. No, no. Invoices for it and bring another five, please. Okay. Uh, uh, and we'll like the other five next week. Can you deliver that? Oh, yes, we can. Of course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so we we obviously ramped up 
yeah. uh, to be able to deliver those things. We uh, Im- uh, improved and perfected our cellophane wrapping yeah. so, that, so that now it takes two or three minutes to wrap something in cellophane, whereas it took half an hour for the very first one. Um, and uh, and we uh, transport them out to, to Porsche. They... Uh, they ask for them. We we bring them out. We leave them with more than they immediately need, so they've, they've got a, a stockpile. But none yeah. of the none of the food in the hamper can go off. It's yeah. it has got a shelf life, but it's quite an extended shelf life. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, and they are getting through uh, a certain amount uh, every week. I think yeah. that they are putting them in the Porsche Cayenne. Right. When I've seen photographs of them, it's it seems to be a gift that goes into Porsche Cayenne for for handover. I think it would also fit quite nicely in a Porsche 911 yeah, in the very so small it. boot space that those cars have, uh, as I <laughs> like to tell my brother. But uh, <laughs> he can get two small kids in, I, I know, because he's photographed his children in the boot. But, <laughs> um, oh, nice. Yeah, so oh, that's, I mean, that's worked out really well for us. Yeah. And, and actually that, that uh, opportunity has opened up our, our thought pattern to other opportunities within other markets that are similar to mm. Porsche, similar to estate agents. So we're going for high-end hotels as well mm. uh, now. Cool. Um, well, first all the all the car dealers in the yeah, area. and all the car all <laughs> the all the quality or luxury car dealership or prestige car dealerships in yeah, the, yeah. in the area. We'll be targeting those or speaking to those uh, in the near future. Nice. Um, Nice. And then hopefully that will that will uh, allow us to grow and allow us to continue to operate. Um, and eventually, I'll be able to give up my PAYE job. Yep. Won't be long. <laughs> yeah. Won't be it. long. That's it. I'm looking uh, forward to cool. that. Cool. Well, look, we've uh, we've just about smashed through an hour and ten minutes. Wow. <laughs> wow. Where so, did that time go? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's been uh, been been really interesting and uh, yeah. Um, it's, it's it's cool to see what you're doing, and um, also and enjoy the chocolate brownie. Thanks, Nikki. Yeah, <laughs> that you brought across. <laughs> and I would encourage everyone to go to uh, to Miss Muffet's because it's uh, very nice food, and uh, especially Christmas time. I think I got I I got my wife a hamper from there last year, and uh, uh, absolutely and brilliant. I mean, they had, food was uh, you know I know it's I know amazing. it's our business, but it is. It is really good quality uh, food, and um, and it, and uh, it's it's surprising. It surprises me how yeah. how good it is. Uh, yeah, and she's she's done a a great job with that. And then and hopefully we are doing a good job with uh, with the hamper business, and it, and it will grow um, online. And um, definitely. And this time next year, we'll be millionaires. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, uh, yeah. So mmhampers.co.uk. You're on the Instagram as Miss Muffet's Hampers. Yes. And as you are on Facebook. As I am on Facebook. And then and then you Simon Veal on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, and Miss Muffet's Hampers on LinkedIn and as well. Yeah. Something. Okay. Brilliant. So uh, we'll pop all of those in the uh, the old show notes. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, yeah. If you know people thinking outside the. Outside the hamper. <laughs> outside the hamper box. Yeah. Outside the cheese box. Think yeah. outside the cheese box. Think outside the cheese box. Yeah. And um, yeah, maybe it's you, you know a good way to uh, to gift your your clients and uh, and customers because uh, it's always a good thing to do. I think surprise surprise gifts here and there, like not 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 necessarily when people are 
In fact, did I did I mention that book Giftology to you last no, time we met? No, I don't think you did. No. There's a really cool book called Giftology, we need to look and at it's that. about sort of the art of gifting. And this guy, he I've forgotten his name now, but he runs a, he runs a business in the states, and they sort of advise and help on uh, for for businesses to gift their normally their staff, I think, but and their customers as All well. Right. But it's about the art of it, and it kind of he takes a different approach where he's saying like don't you know don't do the obvious don't like send a gift at christmas and send a gift at valentine's just do them randomly here mm. and there and also not to um not to actually brand them with your branding because mm. if you send a gift with your branding it's not really a gift no it's, it's actually something to try and advertise yourself he's saying like bespoke it to them you yeah know, like put engrave their name on it or something and then every time they use it they're going to think of you and it's just a like really cool way of thinking of gifting i think it'd be mm. interesting to for you to read that i think and and, and get some inspiration from yeah that. I'll, I'll look at that it's, uh, it's really cool because when we started off you know using the use because we, we were selling cheese boxes we thought we would sell more cheese boxes than hampers and at the moment, it's sort of a little bit 50-50. We're not quite sure which which will lead and which will lag. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, the the cheese boxes, we th- we thought people would buy cheese boxes for themselves. Mm-hmm. In other words, they wouldn't have access to a quality cheesemonger. Yeah. We were a quality cheesemonger. And so they could buy their quality cheese from us mm. because that was the experience that we'd had from mm. online cheese um, sellers. Right, yeah. We were buying it for ourselves. Yeah. Um, but our experience has been that people buy it, buy it as gifts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they buy it as Christmas presents. They buy it as Father's Day presents, birthday yeah. presents. They buy subscriptions as birthday presents. Mm. Um, and we were quite surprised by that. It was not a thing, f- in our experience, it wasn't a thing that... that people did and uh, and then we've yeah. of course we've learnt that that is that is what they do so we market it in that way now we market it much more as a gift than mm. a thing for yourself that's an important yeah. lesson in itself isn't it as, it uh, is yeah. listening to what people are actually uh, doing with your product yeah so yeah absolutely yeah. yeah cool well um yeah thanks very much uh, simon well thanks for uh, thanks great. for having me in dan it's no great. been a pleasure yeah. take care cheers thank you You've been listening to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me, Dan Barker. You can find links to all the episodes and show notes over at danbarkerstudios.com forward slash podcast. If you've enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show and connect more people in the region. Thank you very much for your time listening. I hope you've enjoyed it and we'll see you next time.